Section number five of the Natural History, volume seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, volume seven, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section five, book thirty-two, chapters one to twelve. Natural History of Pliny, Book 31, Remedies Derived from Aquatic Animals Chapter 1, The Power of Nature is Manifested in Antipathies, The Echinaeus, Two Remedies Following the proper order of things, we have now arrived at the culminating point of the wonders manifested to us by the operations of nature, and even at the very outset, we find spontaneously presented to us an incomparable illustration of her mysterious powers, so much so, in fact, that beyond it we feel ourselves bound to forbear extending our inquiries, there being nothing to be found either equal or analogous to an element in which nature quite triumphs over herself, and that, too, in such numberless ways. For what is there more unruly than the sea, with its winds, its tornadoes, and its tempests? And yet in what department of her works has nature been more seconded by the ingenuity of man than in this, by his inventions of sails and of oars? In addition to this, we are struck with the ineffable might displayed by the ocean's tides, as they constantly ebb and flow, and so regulate the currents of the sea as though they were the waters of one vast river. And yet all these forces, though acting in unison, and impelling in the same direction, a single fish, and that of a very diminutive size, the fish known as the Echinaeus, possesses the power of counteracting. Winds may blow and storms may rage, and yet the Echinaeus controls their fury, restrains their mighty force, and bids a ship stand still in their career, a result which no cables, no anchors, from their ponderousness quite incapable of being weighed, could ever have produced. A fish bridles the impetuous violence of the deep, it subdues the frantic rage of the universe, and all this by no effort of its own, no act of resistance on its part, no act at all, in fact, but that of adhering to the bark. Trifling as this object would appear, it suffices to counteract all these forces combined, and to forbid the ship to pass onward on its way. Fleets, armed for war, pile up towers and bulwarks on their decks, in order that, upon the deep even, Men may fight from behind ramparts, as it were. But alas for human vanity! When their prows, beaked as they are with brass and with iron, and armed for the onset, can thus be arrested and riveted to the spot by a little fish no more than some half-foot in length. At the Battle of Actium, it is said, a fish of this kind stopped the Praetorian ship of Antonius in its course, at the moment that he was hastening from ship to ship to encourage and exhort his men, and so compelled him to leave it and go on board another. Hence it was that the fleet of Caesar gained the advantage in the onset, and charged with a redoubled impetuosity. In our own time, too, one of these fish arrested the ship of the emperor Caius in its course when he was returning from Astura to Antium, and thus, as the result proved, did an insignificant fish give presage of great events, for no sooner had the emperor returned to Rome than he was pierced by the weapons of his own soldiers. 
Nor did this sudden stoppage of the ship long remain a mystery, the cause being perceived upon finding that, out of the whole fleet, the emperor's five-banked galley was the only one that was making no way. The moment this was discovered, some of the sailors plunged into the sea, and on making search about the ship's sides, they found an Echeneus adhering to the rudder. Upon its being shown to the emperor, he strongly expressed his indignation that such an obstacle as this should have impeded his progress, and have rendered powerless the hardy endeavors of some four hundred men. One thing, too, it is well known, more particularly surprised him, how it was possible that the fish, while adhering to the ship, should arrest its progress, and yet should have no such power when brought on board. According to the persons who examined it on that occasion, and who have seen it since, the Echeneus bears a strong resemblance to a large slug. The various opinions entertained respecting it we have already noticed when speaking of it in the natural history of fishes. There is no doubt, too, that all fish of this kind are possessed of a similar power. Witness, for example, the well-known instance of the shells which are still preserved and consecrated in the Temple of Venus at Nidos, in which, we are bound to believe, once gave such a striking evidence of the possession of similar properties. Some of our own authors have given this fish the Latin name of Morna. It is a singular thing, but among the Greeks we find writers who state that, worn as an amulet, the Echeneus has the property, as already mentioned, of preventing miscarriage and of reducing precedence of the uterus, and so permitting the fetus to reach maturity. While others, again, assert that, if it is preserved in salt and worn as an amulet, it will facilitate parturition. The fact to which it is indebted for another name which it bears, Odenolites. Be all this as it may, considering this most remarkable fact of a ship being thus stopped in its course, who can entertain a doubt as to the possibility of any manifestation of her power by nature, or as to the effectual operation of the remedies which she has centered in her spontaneous productions? Chapter 2. The Torpedo. Nine Remedies. And then, besides, even if we had not this illustration by the agency of the Echeneus, would it not have been quite sufficient only to cite the instance of the torpedo, another inhabitant also of the sea, as a manifestation of the mighty powers of nature? From a considerable distance even, and if only touched with the end of a spear or staff, this fish has the property of benumbing even the most vigorous arm, and of riveting the feet of the runner, however swift he may be in the race. If, upon considering this fresh illustration, we find ourselves compelled to admit that there is in existence a certain power which, by the very exhalations and, as it were, emanuations therefrom, is enabled to affect the members of the human body, what are we not to hope for from the remedial influences which nature has centered in all animated beings? Chapter 3. The Sea Hare. Five Remedies. No less wonderful, too, are the particulars which we find stated relative to the sea hare. Taken with the food or drink, it is a poison to some persons, while to others, again, the very sight of it is venomous. Indeed, if a woman in a state of pregnancy so much as looks upon one of these fishes, she is immediately seized with nausea and vomiting, a proof that the injury has reached the stomach, and abortion is the ultimate result. The proper preservative against these baneful effects is the male fish, which is kept dried for the purpose in salt, and worn in a bracelet upon the arm. And yet the same fish, while on the sea, is not injurious, by its contact even. 
The only animal that eats it without fatal consequences is the mullet. The sole perceptible result being that its flesh is rendered more tender thereby, but deteriorated in flavor, and consequently not so highly esteemed. Persons when poisoned by the sea hare smell strongly of the fish, the first sign, indeed, by which the fact of their having been so poisoned is detected. Death also ensues at the end of as many days as the fish has lived. Hence it is that, as Licinius Macer informs us, this is one of those poisons which have no definite time for their operation. In India, we are assured, the sea hare is never taken alive, and we are told that, in those parts of the world, man, in his turn, acts as a poison upon the fish, which dies instantly in the sea, if it is only touched with a human finger. There, like the rest of the animals, it attains a much larger size than it does with us. Chapter 4 Marvels of the Red Sea Juba, in those books descriptive of Arabia, which he has dedicated to Caius Caesar, the son of Augustus, informs us that there are mussels on those coasts, the shells of which are capable of holding three semisexterii, and that, on one occasion, a whale, 600 feet in length and 360 feet broad, made its way up a river of Arabia, the blubber of which was bought up by the merchants there. He tells us, too, that in those parts they anoint their camels with the grease of all kinds of fish, for the purpose of keeping off the gadflies by the smell. Chapter 5 The Instincts of Fishes The statements which Ovid has made as to the instincts of fish, and the work of his known as the Heliudicon, appear to me truly marvelous. Ascaris, for instance, when enclosed in the wicker kite, makes no effort to escape with its head, nor does it attempt to thrust its muzzle between the osiers. But turning its tail towards them, it enlarges the orifices with repeated blows therefrom, and so makes its escape backwards. Should, too, another scarus, from without, chance to see it thus struggling within the kite, it will take the tail of the other in its mouth, and so aid it in its efforts to escape. The lupus, again, when surrounded with a net, burrows the sand with its tail, and so conceals itself until a net has passed over it. The marina, trusting in the slippery smoothness of its rounded back, boldly faces the meshes of the net, and by repeatedly wriggling its body, makes its escape. The polyp makes for the hooks, and, without swallowing the bait, clasps it with its feelers. Nor does it quit its hold until it has eaten off the bait, or perceives itself being drawn out of the water by the rod. The mullet, too, is aware that within the bait there is a hook concealed, and is on its guard against the ambush. Still, however, so great is its veracity that it beats the hook with its tail and strikes away from it the bait. The lupus, again, shows less foresight and address, but repentance at its true imprudence arms it with mighty strength, for, when caught by the hook, it flounders from side to side, and so widens the wound, till at last the insidious hook falls from its mouth. The marina not only swallows the hook, but catches at the line with its teeth, and so gnaws it asunder. The antheus, Ovin says, the moment it finds itself caught by the hook, turns its body with its back downwards, upon which there is a sharp knife-like fin, and so cuts the line asunder. According to Lyenius Macer, the marina is of the female sex only, 
and is impregnated by serpents, as already mentioned. And hence it is that the fisherman, to entice it from its retreat and catch it, make a hissing noise in imitation of the hissing of a serpent. He states, also, that by frequently beating the water it is made to grow fat, that a blow with a stout stick will not kill it, but that a touch with a stalk of fennel giant is instantly fatal. That in the case of this animal, the life is centered in the tail, there can be no doubt, is also that it dies immediately on that part of the body being struck. While, on the other hand, there is considerable difficulty in killing it with a blow upon the head. Persons who have come in contact with the razor fish smell of iron. The hardest of all fishes, beyond a doubt, is that known as the orbis. It is spherical, destitute of scales, and all hen. Chapter 6. Marvelous Properties Belonging to Certain Fishes Trebius Niger informs us that whenever the loligo is seen darting above the surface of the water, it portends a change of weather. That the Xiphius, or in other words, the swordfish, has a sharp-pointed muzzle with which it is able to pierce the sides of a ship and send it to the bottom. Instances of which have been known near a place in Mauritania, known as Cot, not far from the river Lyxis. He says, too, that the loligo sometimes darts above the surface in such vast numbers as to sink the ships upon which they fall. Chapter 7. Places Where Fish Eat From the Hand At many of the country seats belonging to the emperor the fish eat from the hand, but the stories of this nature, told with such admiration by the ancients, bear reference to lakes formed by nature and not to fish preserves. That at Eloris, a fortified place in Sicily, for instance, not far from Syracuse. In the fountain, too, of Jupiter, at Labranda, there are eels which eat from the hand, and wear earrings, it is said. The same, too, at Chios, near the old men's temple there, and at the fountain of Chabura in Mesopotamia, already mentioned. Chapter 8. Places where fish recognize the human voice. Oracular responses given by fish. At Myra, too, in Lycia, the fish in the fountain of Apollo, known as Surium, appear and give oracular presages when thrice summoned by the sound of a flute. If they seize the flesh thrown to them with avidity, it is a good omen for the person who consults them. But if, on the other hand, they flap at it with their tails, it is considered an evil presage. At Hierapolis in Syria, the fish in the lake of Venus there obey the voice of the officers of the temple. Bedecked with ornaments of gold, they come at their call, fawn upon them while they are scratched, and open their mouths so wide as to admit of the insertion of the hands. Off the rock of Hercules, in the territory of Stabii, in Campania, the Melanuri seize with avidity bread that is thrown to them in the sea, but they will never approach any bait in which there is a hook concealed. Chapter 9. Places where bitter fish are found, salt or sweet. Nor is it by any means the least surprising fact that off the island of Peel, in the town of Clasmonii, the rock of Scylla in Sicily, and in the vicinity of Leptis in Africa, Euboea, and Dyrrhachium, the fish are bitter. In the neighborhood of Cephalania, Ampelos, Peros, and the rocks of Delos, the fish are so salt by nature that they might easily be taken to have been pickled in brine. 
In the harbor, again, of the last-mentioned island, the fish are sweet, differences, all of them, resulting, no doubt, from the diversity of their food. Appian says that the largest among the fishes is the sea pig, known to the Lacedaemonians as the Orthogoriscos. He states also that it grunts like a hog when taken. These accidental varieties in the natural flavor of fish, a thing that is still more surprising, may, in some cases, be owing to the nature of the locality. And a positive illustration of which is, the well-known bat-bat, at Beneventum, in Italy, salted provisions of all kinds require to be salted over again. Chapter 10 when sea fish were first eaten by the people of Rome, the ordinance of King Numa as to fish. Cassius Hamina informs us that sea fish had been in use at Rome from the time of its foundation. I will give his own words, however, upon the subject. Numa ordained that fish without scales should not be served up at the festivals of the gods. A piece of frugality, the intention of which was, that the banquets, both public and private, as well as the repasts laid before the couches of the gods, might be provided at a smaller expense than formerly. It being also his wish to preclude the risk that the caterers for the sacred banquets would spare no expense in buying provisions, and so forestall the market. Chapter 11. Quarrel. 43 Remedies and Observations. In the same degree that people in our part of the world set a value upon the pearls of India, a subject on which we have already spoken on the appropriate occasion at sufficient length, do the people of India prize coral, it being the prevailing taste in each nation respectively that constitutes the value of things. Coral is produced in the Red Sea also, but of a more swarthy hue than ours. It is to be found also in the Persian Gulf, where it is known by the name of Ias. But the most highly esteemed of all is that produced in the vicinity of the islands called Steechades in the Gallic Gulf, and near the Aeolian Islands in the town of Drapana in the Sea of Sicily. Coral is to be found growing, too, at Graviski, and off the coast of Neapolis in Campania, as also at Erythri, where it is intensely red, but soft, and consequently little value. Its form is that of a shrub, and its color green. Its berries are white and soft while under water, but the moment they are removed from it, they become hard and red, resembling the berries of cultivated cornel in size and appearance. They say that, while alive, if it is only touched by a person, it will immediately become as hard as stone. And hence it is that the greatest pains are taken to prevent this, by tearing it up from the bottom with nets, or else cutting it short with a sharp-edged instrument of iron from which last a circumstance it is generally supposed to have received its name of curalium. The reddest coral and the most branchy is held in the highest esteem, but, at the same time, it must not be rough or hard like stone. Nor yet, on the other hand, should it be full of holes or hollow. The berries of coral are no less esteemed by the men in India than are the pearls of that country by the females among us. Their soothsayers, too, and diviners look upon coral as an amulet endowed with sacred properties, and a sure preservative against all dangers. Hence it is that they equally value it as an ornament and as an object of devotion. 
Before it was known in what estimation quarrel was held by the people of India, the Gauls were in the habit of adorning their swords, shields, and helmets with it. But at the present day, owing to the value set upon it as an article of exportation, it has become so extremely rare that it is seldom to be seen even in the regions that produce it. Branches of quarrel, hung at the neck of infants, are thought to act as a preservative against danger. Calcined, pulverized, and taken in water, quarrel gives relief to patients suffering from griping pains in the bowels, affectations of the bladder, and urinary calculi. Similarly taken in wine, or, if there are symptoms of fever in water, it acts as a soporific. It resists the action of fire a considerable time before it is calcined. There is also a statement made that if this medicament is frequently taken internally, the spleen will be gradually consumed. Powdered coral, too, is an excellent remedy for patients who bring up or spit blood. Calcined coral is used as an ingredient in compositions for the eyes, being productive of certain astringent and cooling effects. It makes flesh, also, in the cavities left by ulcers, and ephesus scars upon the skin. Chapter 12. The antipathies and sympathies which exist between certain objects, the hatreds manifested by certain aquatic animals, the pastinaca, eight remedies, the galios, fifteen remedies, the sermolin, fifteen remedies. In reference to that repugnance which exists between certain things, known to the Greeks as antipathia, there is nothing more venomous than the pastinaca, a sea fish which kills trees even with its sting, as already stated. And yet, poisonous as it is, the gallios pursues it. A fish which, though it attacks other marine animals as well, manifests an enmity to the pastinaca in particular, just as on dry land the weasel does to serpents. With such avidity does it go in pursuit of what is poisonous even. Persons stung by the pastinaca find a remedy in the flesh of the gallios, as also in that of the cerebellate and the vegetable production known as laser. End of section number five.